0: It's, it's six months in a few days, and so we'll—I'll uh, be taking to her to uh, you know nice dinner somewhere like Macca's, and we'll be celebrating our—is that even an anniversary? Is that a thing? <laughs> it's not, right? Yeah, Macca's it is. All good, gourmet burgers. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I've noticed uh, over the last you know few months, the nearly six months that we've been married, is that we've had—we've had a whole bunch of changes that we've had to adjust to. Right, so for example, Jody um, has h- learnt over um, the last six months that um, at night, particularly now when it's cold, um, I might unconsciously, unconsciously, uh, steal the blankets <laughs> from her because I'm, you know, sacrificial and kind and a loving husband, uh, and she's kind of shivering there and trying to steal the blanket back from me. She's had to learn that, adapt to that change. Uh, Jody has had to learn uh, that my standards of uh, Kitchen cleanliness probably is not a standard, <laughs> and it's uh, something that she's had to correct uh, in me, and so I'm learning how to do that. But she's not the only one who's had to adapt to changes. I've had to adapt to some changes. I've learned that uh, boiling dumplings should not be a meal three days a week. That's that's not a meal. And I've also had to learn that you should change your sheets more often than every s- few months. Uh, that's something that I've had to adjust to. Uh there's been a whole bunch of changes that we've had to make. One of the um, maybe uh, more trickier changes that we've had to adjust to is thinking about, and I need to be careful a little bit here, thinking about how we relate to our new parents. Thinking how we relate to our new parents. Um, now, not, not things like how often we'd see them, not things like um, you know how, how regularly we'd have dinner or whether we'd go away together, not stuff like that, but simply just, what do I call you? what do i call you now um my parents uh really classic soon after getting married i believe jody may have been uh, in the bathroom at the time they came up to me and told me dom uh jody has to now call us mum and dad and if she doesn't call us mum and dad uh that would not be right um Classic of them to say something like that. Now, you might be going, of course, you just call them mum and dad. Dom, you're married. It's just what you do. But I want you to just imagine for a second that you're Jodie. Right? You've known my parents just through me. And you've called them auntie and uncle this whole time. You may have called them by their first name. And literally overnight, you're now expected to call them your own mum and dad. Like, suddenly they're different people in your life. Now, to this day, I actually don't know. um, Jodie didn't really give a clear answer this morning at Kingsgrove either, whether she actually calls my parents mum and dad. But the piece of advice that I've been given uh, regarding Neville and Hannah, who, you know, not looking at me right now, um, (laughs) is that you've just got to force it at the start. You've just got to go for it. Now, you've you've just got to say mum, you've just got to say dad, even when it's the most unnatural thing to do. Married couples, is this a thing or am I just overthinking it? It is a thing, right? It is a thing. So, um, yeah, I, I've found myself, I'll say a syllable, like nev or hen, and then I have to correct myself and actually still say mom and dad. I have to, and I've had to do it until it, it's nearly natural, still a little bit odd, but still, do it, still go for it, still do it. See, they're my new parents. That's how I ought to relate to them. I'm glad that there was some laughter because I was a bit worried about it. I <laughs> uh, just be weird. But, um, <laughs> but church, we put a lot of thought into how we relate to others, don't we? Right? For Jody and I, it's our new parents, but for you, my, it's friends, colleagues, uh, maybe you have employees, family, maybe someone you're dating, marriage, if you've got kids, like, you know, oh, we don't have kid, teachers of kids just yet, but you know, we care about what people think, and we've put thought into it. Now, today, as we look through the book of Numbers, as you continue to delve into it, uh, as we look particularly at number 16, we're going to be answering the question, how should we be relating to God? Now, how should we be relating to God? Now, if you haven't been with us, we've now reached a point in the story, in the book of Numbers, where there's been a pretty decisive turn, a huge turn, and I'm trying to, I'll try to go this as, as quick as possible, but if you look at it from like a satellite perspective, um, you'll see that uh, what we heard last week that John preached from Numbers 13 and 14 was probably the climax up to this point in the Scriptures for God's people, right? Um, ever since they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, in fact, in Genesis. This moment that John took us through last week had been civilizations in the making. And we got so close last week, didn't we? They were a nation, right? Nearly a million in size, probably over a million in size. They'd been rescued by God from slavery in Egypt. And they're on the edge of this promised land, this blessed land that God wanted to give to them. They could uh, see it, they could smell it, they could just about touch it. And what do they decide to do? They decide that they want none of it. They decide to turn back and head back towards the desert. They reject the place of blessing that God has promised for them and ever since the 3rd chapter of Genesis this climactic moment that was meant to be the time when God would again be with his people in the in the land that he promised them they turn their backs to it and so that's where we've come from And so the task before us is quite big. We're we're looking at Numbers chapter 16, but in actual fact, we're looking at a wider section of Numbers 15 through to 19. So we'll be kind of touching little bits and pieces of that as well. Um, But we'll be looking at it through the lens of chapter 16. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to recount the events in Numbers 16. Feel free to follow along in your Bibles. Um, also feel free to listen as we go. Uh, there is a lot to go on from here. So we're going to be looking at what goes on in number 16 from two angles, right? The first angle um, is uh, an accusation and a rejection. And the second angle we'll be looking at are two responses. yeah, so an accusation and an accusation and a rejection. And then we'll be looking at two responses. So firstly, an accusation. Now, at the beginning of this section, we meet three people. We meet Cora. He's from the tribe of Levi. We meet uh, Dathan and Abiram. They're from the tribe of Reuben. There's also a fourth fellow. His name is On in verse 1, but he goes off somewhere else, and we don't hear from him. I knew, Hong, you would like that. Um, (laughs) These men, sorry, I had to throw that in there. These men are unhappy. They are unhappy with Moses. Um, They're unhappy with Aaron, Moses' brother. And it's not just them. These three men, they've been such a force that they've gathered 250 recognized community leaders with them. This is an uprising of national proportions. This is a national rebellion. And these three men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they're the instigators. Now, why are they unhappy? See, they're not fans of Moses and Aaron. They're not fans of them because they're in authority. And so they come up to Moses. And we see that Korah, as he comes up to Moses, he says to him, pretty much, why do you act... Like, you run the show. Why are you so above all of us? We see later on that Dathan and Abiram will say similar things. They'll say, why are you bossing us around? Or why are you lording it over us? See, what's going on here is that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they're accusing Moses and Aaron that they've gone overboard with their authority. That they've just gone too far. Now, they sound a bit like Aussies, don't they? Critical of, of authority distrusting, skeptical of those that hold power. Tall poppy syndrome, right? But we know from previous weeks, whether it's in your CGs or whether it's been on a Sunday or whether you've been reading it on your own, that this is not a new dimension to this story. Ever since chapter 10 of Numbers, we've seen grumbling against leadership. There's been one episode after another after another. Authority just doesn't seem to be trusted going on in the Israelite camp. see, The accusation is this that the leadership of Moses and Aaron have gone too far. But this isn't just another one of those accusations. It's, I think there's more going on, uh, and we see that in the rejection that takes place. Right? We'll get to that in a moment, but what's going on for Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? What is underlying the reason why they instigate this national rebellion? We get a hint of it in their declarations before Moses and Aaron. They come together, these men, and they declare that they declare that the whole community, we heard this read for us in verse 3, the whole community is holy. Every one of them. And the Lord is with them. See, these men, led by Korah, they believe that everybody is holy. The whole nation is holy. And in actual fact, there's a lot of truth to what they're saying, right? Just at the end of chapter 15, if you look at just the section before, uh, on ta- the title there, Tassels on Garments, um, all of that is about. Uh, God telling Moses that every Israelite had to wear a tassel on the corner of their clothes to remind them that they were called to be holy. If you know Exodus well, you might recall that while they're at Mount Sinai, God, before he gives the law to them, calls the nation of Israel to be a holy nation. And so the fact that Korah believes they are holy is actually quite truthful in a lot of ways. But how in their rejection, though, these men have mixed this truth, and what they've done is that they turn it on Moses and Aaron. What they're saying to Moses and Aaron is, is basically this they're saying, Moses and Aaron, we don't need you. You have no right to be set above us. Who are you to put yourselves as leaders over us? Who are you that we can only relate to God through the two of you? We are holy. God calls us holy. We wear these tassels. Our nation is holy. Some of us want to be priests, we see in verse 10. We don't need you. We don't want you. We can relate to God in our own terms. See, Southwest, this national rebellion is all about rejecting this priestly authority that Aaron and Moses play in relating with God. They want none of it, and they want to relate to God their way on their terms. Now, I'm just going to pause there for a second because I think the idea of uh, priest and maybe priesthood is an unfamiliar one for many of us. Like, w- we're not growing up uh, with, you know, priests that we interact with daily just on the street. It's, it's, it's an odd cultural um, back foot that we're kind of on as we read a chapter like number 16. And so, um, I, I want to put to you that e- even though the idea of priesthood, and intellectually at least, um, is a little bit foreign to us, I actually think that we um, kind of relate to priest like figures in everyday transactions. We do that all the time, actually. What do I mean by that? Well, um, Jody and I, we drive a Subaru Impreza. It's a great car. We like our car. It runs smoothly. You put the key in, you flick the in- ignition on, it works, it goes. I can take it to work, I can go to college, I can go to class. It's all good. Now, at one stage down the track, I'm sure, uh, this car will no longer work. Uh, something will happen. The engine will fail. I don't know what it is. But at that time, when I flip open the hood, all I'm going to be is confused. Because when I look inside the engine, none of it makes sense to me. Now, I know some of you uh, would love nothing more on a weekend, such as Alan, maybe, uh, to look at an engine, tinker with it, and play with it, and to uh, make sense of it all. You know, it's something that you would enjoy. For me, I would want to do anything else but that. It just doesn't make sense to me. Intellectually, I don't get it. And so what does someone like me do with a car that no longer works? Well, I take it to a mechanic, right? I take it to a car workshop. Um, See, a mechanic is kind of like a priest. (laughs) Let me explain. (laughs) And the car workshop, well, they kind of all wear onesies, right? Um, But the car workshop is kind of like their temple. See. The car workshop is a sacred space that is set apart for the purpose of looking at broken-down cars. You don't go there for your coffee. You don't get go there to do your supermarket grocery shopping. It's a set-apart space. And the mechanic, similarly, is a set-apart individual trained and qualified to deal with this broken car. There's a gap, and they're the person, this mechanic, they're the person who steps in that gap in order to do something about it. That's pretty much a priest. The whole idea of priesthood is to have individual or individuals to step into a gap who are able and qualified to help do something about it. And so for the Israelites then, when individuals or the nation sinned against God, and they needed somebody, a priest, to represent them in that gap of their brokenness before God to help fix the problem on their behalf. And so as we come to our account, back to our account today in number 16, this rebellion is really all about priesthood. This rebellion led by Korah no longer want Aaron and Moses to relate to God with their overbearing authority for them. They believe they're holy, and so they can relate to God on their own terms. Now, as we move away from the, the accusation and the rejection now to the two responses, we're going to see how Moses responds to that, firstly, and then how God responds. Firstly, Moses' response. Right, in almost a, a Wakandian fashion, right? Is that even a word? Wakandian fashion? Moses responds that these accusations against his authority has to involve a trial. Not by combat, um, sadly, but a trial to determine who God has chosen. Um, For Korah and the rebellion, they believe, as we said, that they're also set apart, that they're chosen, and they believe that from among them, the Levites should be eligible to be priests. And so what Moses does is that he sets the scene for the trial. What's going to happen is both Aaron, the high priest, and Korah, and the 250 community leaders that um, he's he's rallied behind him, are to perform a task that only priests are to do, to prove who, who is truly set apart. And they're both to offer incense before God in these senses. And if you can imagine, it's kind of, it's kind of like an Olympic torch, It guess in a less technological way. But that's pretty much what they're doing. They're offering this incense offering to God. Aaron will do it. Korah will do it. These 250 leaders will also do it. Now, if you're the Israelite camp, all alarm bells should be going off at this point. Right? Because they would have recalled not that long ago, that Aaron's own sons, whose names are Nadab and Abihu, back in Leviticus 10, they will take these senses, these same senses. They will put incense in, into it. They will add fire, an unauthorized fire. And what happens to them? Well, fire comes out from the presence of the Lord and consumes them. See, what the trial that has been set is a dangerous one. Judgment Like we saw for Aaron's own sons, is a real possibility. Why? Well, we see why in verse eleven. It's really key. Moses tells Korah, "It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together." It's against the Lord. See, Moses knows that this rebellion, this national rebellion, it's ultimately not trying to target Moses and Aaron. The rebellion actually is against God Himself. And so it's unsurprising back again in verse 3 that Moses, when he hears these allegations, these accusations for the first time, what does he do? He pretty much face plants. He falls face down. Why? Because he's expecting judgment to take place. Usually when someone insults God um, and we see Moses ducking for cover, he's expecting that judgment is going to come. That's why he falls down on his face. And so... um, it's totally not surprising for Moses what will soon take place. See, what's Moses' response to all that's happening? He believes judgment is coming. So what about God's response then? Well, the stage is now set for God to come in. The trial is here. Moses gives um, Korah, um, Dathan, and Abiram a whole day, a full day, to reconsider these accusations. They don't uh, reconsider. They don't retract. Instead, they come full force. Right, Korah and all 250 men Most of the nation are probably gathered at the center of their camp, near the entrance of the tent of meeting. They've got their incense offerings going, their censers are burning, and God is furious. God is absolutely furious. He appears in full glory before everybody gathers. But notice, he only speaks to two individuals. Verse 20, right? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, exclusively, That's significant, isn't it? That God doesn't speak to anybody else but these two. And he tells them, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. See, friends, God at this very point, because of this rebellion against him, is willing to wipe out most of the nation. Like I said earlier, this isn't, this isn't an accusation against Moses and Aaron. What they're doing is they're rebelling and rejecting God. And God takes these accusations personally. But although the threat is real, it doesn't end up passing because Moses and Aaron, they'll intercede to God. They'll appeal to him. Moses will command the nation to move away from the tents of Korah, Abiram, and Dathan. And God will narrow his judgment to those three individuals and their families And also the 250 community leaders also. And so he'll prophesy Moses. He'll prophesy to show that his authority is from God. He'll prophesy that the earth will open. The earth will swallow them and everything that belongs to them. And and hopefully that will be clear enough who actually has priestly authority. It should be clear that who really is treating the Lord with contempt judgment takes place exactly as Moses prophesized the earth opens swallows these men and their households and their possessions and they're separate now from the community but more than that just as Aaron's sons were consumed by fire the 250 community leaders they're also consumed by fire because they've offered unauthorized incense to God now there's a lot that goes on there right there's a lot that just happened but the judgment is so ironic in so many ways See, Korah and his followers, what did they want? They wanted to be set apart. They wanted to be separate, as Moses and Aaron were. And in a way, God gives them exactly what they want. What happens? They're separated from the community as Moses directs everybody to step away from them. They're separated from the community as they perish beneath them in the realm of the dead. They're separated at the very location that they aspired most, at the entrance of the tent of meeting where God's glory dwelled. Among them. Now, before we move to um, what do we learn uh, from this account, some of you might be going, "Well, God, surely that's surely that's unfair." I mean, Jeff kind of touched on it before he prayed. Surely that's unfair. Why would you condemn these men so harshly? Why would you judge them so extremely? Now, to answer this, we kind of need to revisit again what's taken place. Again, chapters 13 and 14, what's taken place? This was meant to be the climax of God's people at this particular point since Genesis 3. This was meant to be the moment where God's promises to them that they would be a people, a nation, which they already are. That they are under God's rule, which they now already are. But now they will be in God's place again. But they reject it. See, God provided for this exact group of people so profoundly. He saved them from captivity. He parted the Red Sea. He sustained them with heavenly food. He'd given them laws so that they could be His nation. And yet, when they finally reach this place, they say no. But God's not done. Even after they say no, and after they're condemned to wander the desert for 40 years, even then, if you read chapter 15, chapter 15 is all about how God immediately reaffirms His uh, his promises to his people in spite of their rebellion. He's saying, the la- he's already speaking the language, when you enter the promised land, he's guaranteeing that for them in spite of the rebellion. He's saying at the end of chapter, end of chapter 15 that I am the Lord your God, uh, still, in spite of all your rebellion against me. See, friends, judgment of this magnitude comes only because the people's rebellion is so persistent in spite of persistent grace. They treat God with such contempt, despite continual, God continually wanting to care for them. And that's the pattern across the Bible. When God reveals himself so dramatically, so extravagantly, he expects those who he reveals himself to, to comply and to obey. And if, and if you don't, well, you're subject to rightful judgment. Because if you aren't willing to obey in that situation, you never will. And so that's what happened to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and the 250 community leaders. Now this brings us to our third point. What uh, should we learn? The biggest takeaway from this account today is that we relate to God only on His terms. We relate to God only on His terms. That's what number 16, that's what it's all about. Korah and his followers, they want to relate to God on their terms, without Moses and without Aaron. And what does God do? Well, he clearly says, no, you have to relate to me on my terms. Through those I have appointed, Moses and Aaron. And he shows that a whole bunch of ways uh, in, in ch- from chapter 16 through to 18. Right? We, we saw that he speaks exclusively to them, Moses and Aaron. We see that he judges the instigators that oppose him. And, he's, and, 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 he, and he again sh- shows who he has placed in authority. In verses 36 to 40, He's going to instruct Moses to tell Aaron's son, the next high priest, to convert the senses that uh, all these men offered to God, who, which have now become holy, to convert the senses into a sh- into sheets that will cover the altar so that whenever an Israelite would walk past the altar, they would see and remember that it is only Aaron and his descendants that could approach God on behalf of Israel. To reinforce the point, chapter 17, um, 12 stars. With names engraved on them, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, they're all brought overnight into the tent of meeting, and yet overnight, the next, sorry, the next day, the only staff which has, bought, which has budded, which has blossomed, which has even produced almonds, is the rod of Aaron. All the other staffs? Nothing. Aaron and his descendants are appointed to this role. Nobody else. Chapter 18, it's all about how the entire nation is to acknowledge the ministry of the priests by providing for them in their work. Now, hopefully you see the point, right? The purpose of all these chapters, 16, 17, 18, put next to each other, is to show that God wants people to relate on His terms, not on theirs, not how they want to. Now, you might be going, well, why would I bother relating to God on His terms? That sounds so restrictive. That sounds actually quite awful. Why would I bother doing that? Now, if if you're wondering that, I want to suggest to you that, in fact, um, a lot of things that are good, even freeing things that are good on surface, actually sound quite restrictive. They actually sound pretty awful. And they actually require doing things on the terms of another and not on your own. Now, I don't know if you recall this, but do you remember when you first when you had your first ever driving test. I mean, not, not, the, not the test where you have to answer questions and press screens and stuff, but a physical driving test. I don't know if you recall that. Um, now, if you remember back to that, you will remember that what you had to do is that you had to restrict yourself to the terms of a whole bunch of different things. Right? There were the restrictions of your instructor, or if, it were, or if your parents taught you, your parents'. Things like, you know, hold your wheel from 10 to 2 or 9 to 3, depending on your instructor. To drive slowly. I remember my mum holding onto the safety bar for dear life as as I was learning how to drive. There are restrictions of road rules, road signs, and traffic lights. Stop at the red sign for the three seconds. Stick to the speed limit. Don't floor it if the light turns amber. There are restrictions of the car. If you drove an automatic car, make sure it's in park before you turn the ignition on. It's not going to work otherwise. If you drive manual, make sure you know where the friction point is on the clutch. See, we have all these restrictions, all these terms that are imposed onto us, but why do we do them? So that we can drive safely and competently from point A to point B. So we know that when we go on the roads, other drivers who have also learnt aren't going to randomly crash into us and kill us every time. So when we go overseas and hire a a car, we know the car works the exact same way and we know how to drive. See, by restricting us to the terms of the car, the instructors, the rules, we actually have freedom. See, why would you bother to relate to God on His terms? Why would you bother to restrict yourself in this way? Well, similarly to, to the driving illustration, it's for our greater good. God was the God wanting to give the promised land, remember? God was the God who saved them from captivity in Egypt. But more than that, and more importantly, this is why it is good for us. God gave these terms because without them, there was no way to be in relationship with Him. This was the only way. This is why these terms are ultimately good. Remember the whole idea of priesthood with the mechanic, There is a gap of brokenness that someone unqualified and incapable is unable to fix. And we need someone qualified and capable that can step in and represent. See, God is saying, if you relate with me, if you relate with me on your terms, I will not be able to relate with you. In fact, if you relate with me on your terms, I'm going to have to judge you. And that's what happens to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the 250 community leaders. See, church, the terms God sets to relate with him are less about restriction and more about permission in a way. Right? Without them, it's not permissible to relate with God. The gap needs to be filled by the priest God appoints because without them, that gap remains, you see. God sets these terms not because he's restricting his people from relating with him, but precisely so that they can relate with him. It's kind of like, this is a very um, imperfect illustration, it's kind of like seeing your GP. Right? Your GP wants to see you. They want to help you. But in order to do that, there are restrictions and terms such as making an appointment, coming on time. But that act of an appointment and that coming on time isn't because the GP doesn't want to see you. It's precisely so that they can see you. And that's why so much is made of the priesthood here. So much is made of who God has chosen to be His appointed priest, to represent His people in order to relate to Him. But the same is said uh, for us today. The same is to be said for us today. See, we've gone to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 many times in our series uh, in Numbers. um, And what we read there, don't feel like you have to flick there, but the events of the Israelite nation and what they go through as they wander through the desert, They're written as examples and warnings for us, for those who are on the other side of the cross, for us today. This isn't just some historical story that's interesting to hear. These stories call for us to self-examine. You see, friends, like the Israelites, we need a priest to relate with God. The terms are the same. We are broken. There is a gap that we cannot bridge on our own. We're not qualified. We're not capable to step into this gap. We need a priest, just as the Israelites did. The terms have not changed, but the priest has. The priest has changed, and the priest is far better. See, the priestly role that Aaron plays foreshadows, as Jeff was saying earlier, the priestly role of Jesus. In the letter to the Hebrews, is probably where we see this clearest uh, Maybe pop this on the screen, Jared, if you can. Hebrews chapter 5, read this with me. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's pretty much a definition of what a priest does. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. And we'll skip to verse eight. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. See what's the writer of the Hebrews trying to say there? That Jesus, like Aaron, is called to be a priest. The writer of the Hebrews says it isn't an honor that he took that Jesus took on himself. It was an honor designated by God. He was appointed to this. The book of the Hebrews however tells us that unlike Aaron, Jesus is a far better priest. And there are a whole bunch of reasons why the the writer of the Hebrews says that's the case. And I'm going to give you four. Um, The first one is, for Israel, the high priest would offer incense and sacrificial animals as a temporary solution. What does Jesus do? He offers himself. Right? Not, not, Not animals, not incense. He offers himself and by doing so becomes a source of eternal salvation. Number two, Priests in Israel, for Israel, were imperfect on their own. They had to offer sacrifices, as we just read in Hebrews, even for themselves. But Jesus, as the perfect priest, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices for himself. While the priests, number three, of Israel sacrificed daily, Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. The Israelites, number four, had many priests after Aaron. When one died, another took his place. They were temporary, but Jesus' high priesthood is singular. He's the only one, and he's the only one because he's permanent and he's eternal. See, as you draw to a close, for some of us here today, you're still wrestling with this. That before God, um, we're truly broken, and that we need Jesus to step in the gap to be our high priest. See, the truth according to the scriptures is that we can't fix this problem. No amount of goodness, morality, or charity changes that. And at the end of this chapter, we're going to see the Israelites again. They haven't learned their lesson. They again oppose Moses and Aaron. They haven't learned their lesson. They come again to the tent of meeting. They oppose God again. And in response to this increase in opposition, God raises the judgment harshly. And he wipes out thousands with a plague. But it could have been a lot more, if not... For Aaron, who steps into the gap with his incense offering again, and verse 48 paints this amazing picture that he stands between the living and the dead in the gap of the broken, imperfect Israel. And when he does that, the plague stops. See, that could not be a more perfect picture of what Jesus does as high priest. He stands in the gap between the living and the dead on the cross. It isn't a popular thing to say this, but according to the Scriptures, our lives are destined to a similar judgment that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram faced if we don't relate to God on his terms. But the good news is that God wants to relate with you. He's appointed this perfect high priest, his son Jesus, to step into the gap, to stand between the living and the dead. And so if you're still wrestling, keep wrestling. Don't stop. Keep investigating. Chat with someone. Chat with me. Chat with Pete. Chat with Jace. Chat to whoever brought you. Do that. But for many of us here, uh, we already believe that Jesus is our priest. We already believe that Jesus has stepped into our brokenness and done what we could not do. And maybe, though, while we began that way, relating to God and His terms, maybe you're in a season at the moment where you no longer are. Perhaps perhaps you're weighed down by sin. Perhaps you're unable to see and move past. There might be one glaring sin. It might be many. It might cause deep shame because of it. Friends, if Jesus is high priest, and if he is ever interceding for us because of what he has done on the cross, our confidence, can I gently yet firmly remind you, is on the priestly work of Jesus, not our own. We can have quiet confidence that we enter the presence of God, not because of anything we've done to fix our situation, but totally and completely on what Jesus has done. If that's you, maybe that's something you should be reflecting on this week. Perhaps for some of us, um, maybe unknowingly, we're abusing the fact that Jesus is our priest, that he's ever interceding for us. Maybe there's sin that we knowingly commit, It might be one-off, it might be many occasions. And yet we find no need to repent, no need to confess. After all, if Jesus is always interceding, if he's always in that gap as our priest, if he's always praying for us, we don't need to confess. I'm already forgiven. If there's a hint of that in your life, the truth is that Jesus as our high priest isn't meant to promote negligence to our commitment to live as Christians. It's meant to promote faithfulness. See, the fact that Jesus is praying on your behalf, it's meant to draw you to repent of your sin and to pray earnestly. And those prayers are effective because they are being heard by God because of our great high priest, Jesus. And to close, perhaps for some of us, uh, we're in a time where we need wisdom. We're in a challenging season of life. And if that's you, the fact that Jesus is always interceding for us means that In a way, Jesus cares more about your life than even you do. He's always interceding for you because of what he's done on the cross. And so perhaps some of us need to come to Jesus, our perfect priest, in our time of need and in our time of confusion. Friends, how should we relate to God? We relate to God on his terms for our good through the perfect priest that he has appointed for us, Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for how you speak, not just uh, in uh, popular maybe passages that we're familiar with, but all of Scripture is God breathed. And so we thank you that in your goodness, passages like this point to our need for your plan for us, your need. Uh, our need uh, to have a priest to represent us because on our own, we can't do anything on ourself, by ourselves. Father, I pray for those of us here um, who might be uh, reminded of that tonight. Help us to find true comfort and true security and confidence because Jesus is ever interceding for us as our perfect high priest. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.